Well, good morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here. And I wonder, when was the last time you had to wait for something or someone? Man, if you're sitting next to your wives, look straight ahead. No elbows. Maybe it was this morning. Maybe you had to wait for someone to get ready. Maybe it was for online shopping to arrive or a house to be built or a movie that's coming out. I'm a bit of a nerd, so I love Lord of the Rings, and I remember just waiting uh, for The Hobbit to be released in the cinemas. It's one of the few movies that I've seen in gold class. Uh, The problem was that the movie was really long, I was really tired, and the seats were really comfy. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's had a nap in those gold class seats. Maybe it was waiting for a person to arrive. I remember uh, almost nine years ago, standing right down there, Uh, waiting for Molly to arrive through those doors, come down that aisle on our wedding day. Now, the truth is, she didn't take that long, but it felt like a long time. When was the last time you had to wait for someone or something? Now, the reason I bring this up is because there is a page in the Bible, the page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. And that page represents 400 years of waiting. From the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years of waiting. Now, that's a long time. And the question is, what or who were they waiting for? And that's the question that we're going to be looking at today. For the last number of weeks, we've been in a sermon series called The Bible a story that makes sense of life. We have been looking at the big picture of the Bible, how the Bible fits together and how the Bible makes sense of our lives. Now, so far in the first six weeks of this series, we have covered the story of the Old Testament. We've looked at the Old Testament in six main movements, creation, fall, promise, exodus, kingdom, And then last week, we looked at exile. And what we've seen throughout is that the story of the Bible is really the story of three main ingredients. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This is the pattern that is set right at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden. This is the pattern that continues through the story of the Bible. And this is the pattern that when you get to the end of the Old Testament is hanging by a thread. Because God's people at this point in the story are merely a remnant. It's the small group that have returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And God's place, the temple in Jerusalem, the the place where God dwelt among his people, it's been rebuilt, but it's a shadow and it's a shell of what it once was. And God's blessing, it has not yet spread to the whole world. It is in many ways a bit of a sad picture at the end of the Old Testament. But it's not the whole picture. Because right from the very beginning, against this backdrop of disappointment, God has been making a series of promises. There have been rays of hope through this story. I mean, God has promised to send someone who would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3, put an end to evil once and for all. God promised to Abraham to bless the whole world through his descendants in Genesis 12. 
God promised to David to send a king from his line who would reign forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so there's been these series of promises that have been made. And this thread runs right through the Old Testament. But you get to the end and the people of God, the nation of Israel, they're still waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. The Old Testament ends with Israel on their tippy toes, waiting for this Savior, this Messiah, this Deliverer to arrive. And today we're going to look at the fulfillment of those promises as we turn our attention to the New Testament and to the arrival of the Messiah. And that means today we are going to look at the first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, as they're called, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Gospels are very simply like biographies of Jesus. In fact, the word gospel just means good news. These books are good news about Jesus. They tell us about Jesus' life and ministry and his mission. Now, they're named after their authors. So Matthew wrote Matthew and Luke wrote Luke and so on and and so forth. And these four men wrote to different audiences. And they wrote with different emphases. But when you put them together, they paint a comprehensive and complementary portrait of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be summarizing these four books and what they tell us about Jesus. Now, can you do that in a single sermon? Not really. But we're going to give it our very best shot, and we're going to look at these four books under three main headings. Jesus' profound identity. Who is Jesus? Jesus' saving mission. Why did Jesus come? And then lastly, Jesus' urgent message. What does Jesus want from us? So let's begin, number one, with Jesus' profound identity. Now imagine you were writing the story of a hero, someone who had been promised for thousands of years, someone whom people had been waiting for to arrive. How would you begin that story? With lightning going off and thunder in the sky? Or the hero being born to a powerful, wealthy family? What about a long list of names? What about a genealogy? Probably not the way that you or I would begin the story. But when we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, after 400 years of waiting, here's how the story begins in Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of goes on for 15 more verses. And it's not the most exciting way to begin the story, is it? So why would Matthew begin this way? Although it may not seem very exciting, Matthew is making a very important point. He wants us to know that Jesus did not emerge from nowhere. That Jesus is not some random miracle worker that just showed up on the scene. He wants us to know that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. That Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. This is why Matthew calls Jesus the son of Abraham. 
He's saying that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham that will bring blessing to the whole world. It's why he calls Jesus the son of David. He's saying Jesus is the king that would come from the line of David and will reign forever. It's also why he calls Jesus the Messiah. This is a word that means God's anointed king, God's chosen king. It's actually the the same word or the related word to the word Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. His earthly father was not Joseph Christ, and his brothers and sisters were not, you know, did not have the last name Christ. Christ is actually Jesus' title and his job description. It means anointed king. It's like when we say Queen Elizabeth. When we say Jesus Christ, we are saying King Jesus. And Matthew's point in beginning this way is to show that Jesus is the culmination of Israel's story, that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He is the one, the whole story has been leading up to. If you're a Disney fan, it's like that moment in The Lion King when Simba finally returns to Pride Rock to defeat evil and to claim his throne. The rightful king has arrived, the one that we've been waiting for. And so you might assume that Jesus would be welcomed with open arms, that everyone would be thrilled that Jesus has finally arrived. And yet when you read the Gospels, you see that this is not the case. Jesus is actually quite often rejected. Now, why is that the case? Well, the simple answer is that Jesus was not exactly what Israel were expecting. For starters, Jesus refused to take up arms against the Roman Empire. You see, Israel thought that the the Messiah would be a military leader who would come and free them from Roman oppression, give them their independence back. But Jesus was not like that. Jesus did not take up arms. He subverted their expectations. He was not what they were expecting. In fact, Jesus really went beyond what anyone was expecting. Because Jesus was not just God's king. Jesus was nothing less than God with us. That's what Matthew writes in the opening chapter of his gospel. See, after the angel has announced the miraculous conception of Jesus, this is what he says. He says, all this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, through Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. Now through the Old Testament, there were a number of temporary manifestations of God's presence. The burning bush in Exodus, for example, the pillar of cloud and fire, visions and dreams. But they were all God above us. God beyond us, God removed from us, but Jesus is God with us, God like us, God for us. This is incredible. Here's how John begins his gospel, his account about Jesus. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word, referring to Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message paraphrase puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In Jesus, God has moved into our neighborhood. And John calls Jesus the word because Jesus is God's word to humanity. He is God's message, God's communication to humanity. Or as one author puts it, he says, Jesus is everything God wants to say to the world, wrapped up in a person. If we want to know God, Jesus explains him 
perfectly. You know, maybe you've had people say this to you, like they said to me, well, I would believe in God if he would rip open the heavens and speak to me. I'd believe in God if he showed himself to me. Well, the answer of the Bible is that God has actually done far more than that. That God has come from heaven to earth to become one of us, to become like us, to become flesh, as John puts it. In other words, God has become blood and bone. And this is what you see through the the Gospels. You see that Jesus was a real man, that he got hungry and thirsty and tired, that he had to sleep and sneeze and cut his fingernails. He, He didn't float around six inches off the ground. He didn't have like a halo around his head. He experienced what you and I experience. This is why Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way as we are, which means that he can sympathize with us and our weaknesses. God hasn't simply told us about himself. God has shown himself to us. God has become one of us. Jesus is God with us. Now, the question is, why would God do this? Why would the eternal God, the maker of heaven and earth, descend into our mess like this? If my kids are playing outside in the sand pit and it starts to rain and they get all muddy and dirty, I don't want to go down there and get them and pull them out and clean them up. I just stand on the deck and call out to them and say, get inside. Why would God descend into our mess? It's our second point, which is Jesus' saving mission. Why did Jesus come? We know Jesus' name actually gives us the reason that he came. And this is what the angel says to Mary and to Joseph in Matthew 1. He tells them what they are to name this child. Look what we read, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord saves, and his name reveals his mission. Jesus came on a rescue mission. This is why when the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field in Luke chapter 2, this is what they said. They said, today in the town of David, a teacher has been born to you. A guide has been born to you. A guru has been born to you. A saviour has been born to you. Jesus is not mainly a teacher or a guide or a guru. Jesus is mainly a saviour. This is why he came, to seek and to save the lost, to use his own words. Now, if you had to save the world, how would you go about it? What would you do? Well, Jesus went about it in perhaps a very surprising way. You might not know this, but Jesus only lived 33 years on this earth. And he spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. I mean, he he lived in, in Nazareth, a tiny town at the back of nowhere. He was the oldest of six siblings. He learned Joseph's trade as a carpenter. In other words, Jesus had 33 years to save the world, and he spent the first 30 years in obscurity. But then at the age of 30... It changed, and he left behind 
his family trade and he began his heavenly mission. Now, how did he begin? How did he kick off his, his mission and his ministry to save the world? Well, he began by getting baptized. That's what we read a moment ago in Mark's gospel. You see, Jesus' cousin John was out in the wilderness and he was baptizing people. This was a ritual ceremony of, of cleansing for sinners. It was for those who knew they needed inner cleansing. And then John is there baptizing people and all of a sudden Jesus joins the queue. And you don't read it in Mark's gospel, but John has some questions. Why would Jesus come to be baptized? I mean, he's the only one that doesn't need to be baptized. Why would he do this? And the answer is that right up front, Jesus is showing us why he came. He's showing us that he came for sinners. And when he goes under the waters of baptism, he shows us that he is identifying with us. He is shouldering our burdens. He is joining us. It's a little bit like this way. You know, when a, when a star player joins a football team, what you'll often see is one of the first things they'll do is get a photo of that player in his new jersey. And it's like from that moment on, he's one of us. He's with us. Everything he does, he's going to do for us. Well, when Jesus is baptized, it's like he's putting on our jersey. He's saying, I'm with them. I'm their champion. What I do, I'm going to do for them. Now, the question is, well, what does this do for Jesus' relationship to, to the Father and with the Spirit? I mean, now that Jesus is identifying with riffraff like us, rubbing shoulders with the wrong crowd like us, what is God going to think about this? Is he going to disapprove of Jesus, disown Jesus? Look at what we read in, in the next few verses in, in Mark chapter 1. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. When Jesus joins our family, it doesn't mean that he's out of God's family. Instead, God reaffirms his love for Jesus. And this is before Jesus has even done anything, before he's preached a sermon, before he's performed a miracle, the Father says, I love you. The love that they have enjoyed for all eternity is put on display. And the Father is saying, this is my beloved Son, and he is doing exactly what I sent him to do. This is an incredible moment. And you might think that after this moment, Jesus is going to go to the synagogue for a worship service. Or you might think he's going to go up the mountain to spend some time alone with his father. Instead, what we see is that Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness for a period of testing, to face our spiritual enemy on our behalf. Look at verses 12 and 13. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Now, there's an interesting parallel here, not just to Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, but also there's an interesting parallel to David. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at King David and we saw his coronation, Samuel anointed him with oil, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Do you know what happened in the very next chapter? David went out onto the battlefield to face Goliath, the superhuman enemy of God's people. Well, Jesus here 
is anointed as God's chosen king. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And the very next thing is he immediately goes into the wilderness to face Satan, the superhuman enemy of God's people. And for those who knew their Old Testament, Mark's point is obvious. Jesus is the true David. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one that David was pointing to. And he has come to fight our enemies on our behalf. He is our champion and he's taking up our fight. Now, this is only round one of Jesus' fight with Satan. But it kind of sets the scene for the rest of the Gospels because what you see in the rest of the Gospels is Jesus taking on all of our enemies. Jesus confronting everything that destroys and enslaves and degrades us. And so this is why Jesus overcomes temptation. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus feeds the poor. Jesus controls nature. Jesus casts out demons. All of these things which ravage our existence, Jesus comes and he confronts and he defeats. But all of these are minor battles that are leading up to the decisive battle, which takes place at the end of his life. In fact, about a third of what is in the four Gospels, about a third is devoted just to that final week of Jesus' life because it's the most important week in history. It's the most important battle in human history. And because it's through the events of that final week, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus is defeating all of our greatest enemies. I mean, on the cross, he pays once and for all for our sin and evil. I've been praying this week that this wouldn't just bounce off us that we've heard it so many times that we're just so used to it. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the true temple, the true meeting place between God and man. And because He dies in our place, He pays the penalty for our sin. He bears our judgment. He makes a way for us to come home to God. On the cross, he disarms the devil, the accuser. See, the one that was promised in Genesis 3 that would come to crush the head of the serpent, he has arrived. And you see, because he's paid our debt in full on the cross, the accuser can now make no true accusation against us. But then three days later, Jesus rose again. And he defeated death itself, punched a hole at the back of the grave, paved the way into the new creation for you and for me, showed us a glimpse of our future, resurrected bodies in a renewed cosmos forever. In fellowship and relationship with God, it's like the Garden of Eden again, but just better. Jesus has changed everything for you and for me. And this is why as he's hanging on the cross with his final breath, he says, it is finished. He doesn't say, I'm finished, because he's not finished. But he says, it is finished. The curse that has ravaged our world, the evil that has destroyed our our lives, the sin that enslaves our hearts, The exile that has left us far from God, it's done. It's over. Jesus has won. It is finished. And it's like that scene in Saving Private Ryan 
where, where Captain Miller is sent on a, a mission, and he has to rescue Private Ryan, and he gets to the end, and, and he's been wounded, and he's dying, and with his final few breaths, he says to, to Private Ryan, who he's managed to rescue, and the mission is done, and he says to Private Ryan, with his final breath, earn this, earn this. In, in other words, be worthy of this sacrifice that has been made for you. And you see, Jesus says the opposite to us. With his final breaths, he says, receive this. Rest in this. This is what I've done for you. In fact, there's one author that says, right across the four Gospels, you could just summarize them with two simple words. For us. Jesus is the God that has come for us entered into our mess, bore our burdens, died our death, and given us his victory. He's saying, I stood in your place on the cross so that you can stand in my place in the presence of God. He's saying, I got what you deserve on the cross so you can get what I deserve in the presence of God. I was forsaken so you can be forgiven. I was cursed so you can be blessed. I was shut out so that you can come And this is why Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, he says, before you take Christ as an example, accept and recognize him as a gift. See, Jesus is a teacher, a guide, but he's most of all a savior. And this leads us to our third and final point, and we're going to be real brief here. But it's Jesus' urgent command. What does he want from us? After all that he's done for us, what does he ask of us? Well, it's very simply put in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, the word repent sounds like a scary word, but it simply means to change your mind, to make a U-turn, to rethink your life and to head in a different direction. You see, you were heading this way, away from God with no regard for God. But now that you've seen the true God in the face of Jesus Christ, you want to go his way. You want to follow him. You want to trust him. You want to know him. And Jesus says, repent, make a U-turn, and believe the good news. The good news about Jesus, that he is who he said he is. He's done what he said he's done, that death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered. Believe the good news. And here's the best part. Everyone's invited and no one's excluded. Even someone like Des. I read Des's story this week. Really difficult upbringing, grew up in England. But later in life, it was a relationship betrayal which broke him completely. And he, one night, it was Christmas time and he decided he wanted to end it all. He was literally going to drink himself to death. So he was on his way to the, the bottle shop and he heard some singing. And he walked into the, the back of his local church, and it was a, a carol service. And a lady got up, and she read from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And she read this about Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Des said, those words struck him like rays of hope. He said, in that moment, I felt loved for the first time. He received and experienced the good news 
about Jesus. Jesus has changed everything for you and for me. Let's repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we words fail to give you the thanks that you deserve for all that you've done for us in Jesus. You have given us so freely what we do not deserve and what we have not earned. And yet, because of your grace and your goodness, we can stand in Jesus' place because he stood in our place. We can receive what he deserves because he received what we deserve. As Lord, we're sorry for when we've taken that amazing good news for granted. We're sorry where it's become ordinary to us. Help us to see that it is amazing. Help us to gaze with awe and worship and wonder upon the Lord Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on Him, to not grow weary, to keep running the race that is before us. To hold on, knowing that you will never let us go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.